Well, the big day is almost here. What big day? Well, the day that Grandma gets to take out her shiny boat, of course. A boat, a fishing boat, a speed boat? <laughs> no, although Grandpa did get her the V8 for the Buick. I'm talking about the day where Grandma gets to take out her shiny gravy boat. Amen? Some of you are like, I'm not that excited, I'm not a big gravy fan. That's okay, but you should know that's why your family talks about you behind your back. <laughs> that's why you still sit at the kid table. <laughs> should it concern us that the noun that we assign to this utensil is such a large item? The container that holds this savory sauce we refer to as a boat the sheer size and volume of this kitchenware indicates something akin to a seaworthy vessel. With Granny as our captain, we could slap a sail on this thing and voyage across the Atlantic. To be fair, we've set the tone for such grand titles when we show up with huge dishes that require team lifting. Aunt Edna, could you get this other side? I'm going to get over here. Carl, 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 come. Could you support the middle? Two hands, two hands. Let's get this broccoli cheese over to the table. We've likely laid out our stretchy pants on that day. We know it's going to be a big meal. Fashion designers have kind of given in too for this sizable celebration and that they've made flexible leggings that look like jeans and khakis with waistbands that yield a yard so we can feed without fear of blowing out a button and still look presentable for Mimi's mandatory photo. There's a lot of strange items that our families bring. This is the only legal time where you can show up with decadent desserts and say, I brought a salad and it's okay. <laughs> There's always someone in the extended family that brings that jello mold with things suspended in it. There's that canned gelatinous cranberry sauce and you say, oh Brad, I would never. I've made mine from scratch for years. But here's the thing, we were at the grocery store the other day and we saw you with your cart and it had a box of stovetop in it. So do we wanna get real judgy? <laughs> for some people, Thanksgiving is just a halftime show, a, a pausing point for their Christmas season. On September 1st, they can be found in their living room just tossing tinsel with reckless abandon. Bing Crosby blaring in the back, a Rudolph sweater with blinking nose, fire in the fireplace, two hands on a peppermint mocha, just staring out the window waiting for Santa to come. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the other side of the window, someone in a riding lawnmower passes by <laughs> with shorts and cut off sleeves, sweating because it's still a thousand degrees. The truth is, you're the reason why the rest of us go to the hardware store in July and we have to wade through a thousand inflatable snowmen to get to the weed killer. <laughs> I'll confess, there has never been a year where I have wanted, where we have needed the joy of Christmas to be here earlier than this one. 
Do you remember what it was like to see that first gift under the tree when you were a child? Oh, I wonder who it's for. I wonder if that's mine. If you were like me, you would go and you would examine it. You would shake it to see if maybe some clue would be revealed. If you were really sneaky, you might just go up to it and see if there was a gap in it so you might find another clue. Nope, mom wrapped this one. I know it's Thanksgiving, but I wonder if pulling back the paper a bit to the present of Christmas might just be what we need to put us in the proper posture this Thanksgiving. If a preview of God's gift of grace might yield genuine gratitude in our hearts. Now in our study of Romans so far, there's been much said about the consequences of sin. The wrath of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, the law. But now, in chapter 3, Paul gives us this preview of God's gift. A tangible glimpse of God's grace. A look at the hope and help of Jesus. Now this morning... God's word and God's spirit have the power to meet you where you're at. To transform your life. I pray that you give it your full attention as we meet together in Romans chapter 3. I want us to consider today God's gift of grace. Look at me, look with me at Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. We'll start there. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. But now, Paul says, He's signaling a transition in the history of salvation. Right standing or justification before God, righteousness does not depend on the requirements of the law. This is what the law and the prophets, they they pointed to, they attested to. God's righteous salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what puts a person in right relationship with him. Then Paul presents a problem. A problem. Look at verse 23 with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A problem. All sin, all fall short, no exceptions. I even exegetically examined the word in the original Greek text and have concluded that it actually means all. (laughs) We're all in the same boat, squeezed in shoulder to shoulder, taking on water aboard the SS Center. All means all. So that means murderer or Mother Teresa. 
It means Bin Laden or Billy Graham. All are sinners. Us too. Flawed, fickle, finite. Not only did all sin, but also all fall short, Paul tells us. This singular verb in the original language is present tense, emphasizing a continuing action. It can be rendered, keep on falling short. So we are both fallen and falling, congenitally, habitually, and might I add, voluntarily into the mix. The fact is no one in his own efforts is able to measure up to the glory of God, God's splendor, his wonderful attributes that he desires that we as humans share in and that we would ultimately reflect. One prominent theologian said it this way, this is what it means to fall short of the glory of God, to exchange it for something else. God offers us the glory of his beauty and strength and generosity and wisdom for our enjoyment and we sniff at it and we fall in love with the things he's made. He offers us himself as his infinite treasure and we trade him in on a second-hand pleasure. One of the trends of 1970s America was the motorcycle distance jump. Apparently in the 70s, motorcycles were not dangerous enough and they said, let's see if they can fly. Unfortunately, being born in the early 80s, I'm a little disappointed I didn't get to experience this important pivotal point in American history. This trend reached its both high and low point on September 8th, 1974. Thousands of spectators gathered around the Snake River Canyon in Idaho and millions more tuned in to see if evil Knievel could jump across the chasm in a specially designed sky cycle. The Sky Cycle X2, which was more of a, a steam-powered rocket, to be fair. Uh, there was a huge buildup. As mentioned before, there were thousands of people gathered. Finally, the day is there after all the fanfare. He climbs aboard the contraption. The countdown ensues and eventually, you see him take off into the wild blue yonder. But it wasn't long at all. He didn't even reach the midway point before you see the emergency parachute pop out and you see him begin to plummet to the bottom of the canyon floor. He crashes along the rocks and thankfully he's okay except for suffering a broken nose but he fell woefully, woefully short of the goal. In similar fashion, we fall short. There will never be a day when we can make the jump, have enough steam where we in our own strength can cross that vast expanse to get to a righteous, holy, perfect, glorious God. We'll never measure up, hit the mark. We're incapable, ill-equipped for the task. In a world so splintered, a world warring, so divided, one constant theme unites us. 
though we fight it, though we may try to deny it, though we may spend our lives running from from him. The truth is we are all mutually dependent on God's gift of grace. Not a one of us can say otherwise. We are all sinners who fall short. Paul presents this problem, then he presents a payment. Meet me there in verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is a gift, it's freely extended to mankind, but that doesn't mean it was cheap. Payment was required and a priceless payment was executed. One of the words Paul pins, redemption, helps convey the price God paid for our salvation. Redemption denotes the act of freeing a slave or a prisoner by ransom payment. Scripture tells us that we're in bondage, enslaved to sin. So God offered his only son as the payment to redeem us from sin's slave market. There's an old story about a boy who lost his boat that illustrates this well. Boy named Tommy had worked so hard to build his very own boat. He spent many hours assembling it, finally came to the day when he deemed it seaworthy. He he took it to a a local river and tied a string to it and began to play with it there on the river. Before too long, as you might imagine, the string breaks. And in horror, Tommy watches this boat escape down the river away from him. He chases along the shore, trying to get where he could reach for it or somehow lasso it back to safety. Before too long, it disappears out of sight. It's dark. He goes home dejected. Walking home from school the next day, he passes a storefront. And lo and behold, he sees his boat. The boat that he had made, he says, that's mine. I recognize that boat. He flings the door open, finds the clerk, and he says, you have my boat. I need to get my boat. No, son, son, someone brought that boat in this morning. I'm sorry, if you want it, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to buy it. He runs home, goes through his house, rips through his room until he finds enough money. He runs back to the store, opens the door and says, I've got enough, and he gets the boat. Walking out of the store in pure joy, he says, now you're mine twice. I made you and I bought you. Now you're mine twice. I made you and I bought you. That old story illustrates the idea of redemption well. He made us 
and he bought us. Would you let that wonderful truth believer just sit on you for a moment? I've been bought by him. <laughs> Furthermore, if, if you've been bought by him, you belong to him. You bear the marks of your maker. He bought you with his son. When you feel worthless, find your value in that. When you feel lost, let that truth lead you. When hope seems to escape, recall who you belong to. Remember, I am redeemed. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That's the kind of payment that we can't pay. That's the kind of capital we don't carry. The death of Christ on the cross was the price for human sin, which secured release from the bondage of Satan, sin, and self for every person who trusts God's promise of forgiveness and salvation. Paul presents a problem, and then he presents a payment. Finally, he presents a pardon. We look at verse 25 with me. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A problem, a payment, and a pardon. Paul's saying that God publicly displayed Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. Propitiation means the satisfying of God's holy, just demands so that God can freely give those his grace when they come to Christ. Paul has made abundantly clear mankind's liability to God's wrath against sin, and now this redemption, this propitiation, proclaims God's gracious provision to deliver them. Christ is the believer's atoning sacrifice, satisfying with his blood God's holy demand that sin be judged. And God had passed over the sins that were past, knowing his son would come and he would finish the work. Now, if we're honest, we've gone a bit soft in modernity. We don't really want to know the gory details of much. Just taking account the food we eat, we'd prefer not to see it processed or be involved with that process. If we have to be involved, it needs to be on a sanitary surface as to not cultivate cross-contamination, preferably with begloved hands. Ideally, we would never have to deal with any of that, but whether we would just sit and get served in a comfortable, casual dining atmosphere, if it could show up on a warmed plate, preferably chicken fried with a side of gravy. I know we've already talked about gravy, <laughs> and yet somehow there's never enough, am I right? <laughs> Needless to say, when we talk about things 
like blood and, and sacrifice, maybe we don't want to hear about it. Maybe it leaves us a bit squeamish. Really, the best illustration of this truth comes from the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, Scripture speaks of, there would be two goats that would come. One would be sacrificed there at the altar. Some of the blood would be taken into the tabernacle by the priest, into the the most holy of places, the, the, the very inner spot, the holy of holies. And there, the priest would take some of that blood. He would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. That cover, that lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant that housed the tablets of the law. And temporarily, the sin of the people was met by this sacrifice. Later, that second goat, the priest would confess the sins of the people and let it go as a scapegoat, that it would symbolize God's people's sins being far from them, like as far as the east is from the west. He was our sacrifice. His blood covers our sin, our shame. Listen to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, in the Old Testament period, the the blood of animals could never take away sin. It could only cover it. Privately, in the Holy of Holies, the priest would make sacrifice for the people's sins. But now, publicly, human sin, past, present, future, is pardoned by Christ's sacrifice. He died a real physical death. Precious blood poured out on our behalf. He had a bodily resurrection and he paid for your sins and my sins once and for all. He redeemed us and was made a propitiation so that we could be made right with God. Don't try to sanitize his sacrifice. Besides, we'll never be able to remove the blood off our hands The blood of Jesus is our only hope, our only means of being made right with God. Paul presents a problem, a a payment, and then a pardon. The big idea of this section is justification by faith through Jesus' sacrifice. Now, justified is a legal term. It's the idea of being made right, declared righteous, hearing not guilty, 
Now, Scripture doesn't lay out every detail of how we'll be judged when this life is over, but that indeed we will take an account for this life, and that we will be judged by the Almighty. My fear is that some see this scene as them before, a righteous judge at the end of their lives presenting the good deeds of their lives in hopes that it will justify them, that it will outweigh their wrongs. God, here I am. I hope you're considering all the deeds of my life been a pretty good person. I know, I know I'm not perfect. I love my family. If my, if my neighbor needed something, I, I was always there. Uh, you, you know about me, you know about my family. Uh, we haven't done a lot of the church thing, but, but you know, we've always been God-fearing people and God, I don't know if you remember the time I, I, I spent some of my money to, to help that family. God, I just, I hope it's enough. I, I feel like I've lived a pretty good life and let me just put all this before you. <laughs> I trust it'll be, I trust it'll be enough. Let me be clear, it's not enough. Sin is a death sentence for us all, not because I say so, but because God says so. If, if that is our testimony, we will suffer the penalty and, and punishment of sin eternally separated from God. Our good lives, our good deeds are not enough, but thank God Jesus is enough. Thank God that he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. See, the believer realizes in this situation, when they're in a court of Judgment, they understand I'm empty handed. I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing good in me that doesn't come from Him. It's in that moment when we put our faith and our trust in Him, when we should get judged, when we should be condemned, that Jesus speaks for us and says, oh, I've paid that debt. That one's mine. She's with, she's with me. Bible says in this passage, all who believe are justified. Again, that's the present tense keep on being declared righteous. For the believer, though Satan may accuse day and night, the blood of Jesus keeps declaring us righteous. Though we keep falling short, the blood of Jesus keeps 
declaring us righteous. And Satan doesn't speak for us. And sin doesn't speak for us. Praise God, the blood of Jesus speaks for us. And it speaks but one thing over the believer. Not guilty. Declared righteous. Bible says in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That he might be the just and the justifier. When your life is judged, who will speak for you? Now, I know it's Thanksgiving, and we're not quite ready for that day that we mark where he was made flesh and he dwelt among us. I know we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves when we let our minds meditate on such merriment. But with the year we're having, I'm just wondering if it might be okay. If in the midst of such tragedy, we had some triumph. If in the midst of so much bad news, we heard the good news. If a child still in the womb would leap at the prospect of such joy of a precious gift, if we too might jump for joy, peeking at the preview of our present. I'm thinking it just might help us if we gazed at God's gift. So pull back the paper and see his glory. It might be just what we need to put us in the proper posture this Thanksgiving. I just wonder if for you and for me, if a look at God's gift of grace might yield real, genuine gratitude in our hearts. Will you pray with me? God, we're overwhelmed at your goodness to us, at the grace that we've received from your hand. God, we don't want our thankfulness, our gratitude, our passion for you to ebb and flow with the circumstances of our lives. God, we want to be firmly placed in the spirit of gratitude for all that you've done for us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for when the world is falling apart, it seems. God, that, that you're constant. God, we are a grateful people for the redemption, for the propitiation. God, for the life that we have in your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.